The theme of our time today, as it has been in, well, since we've begun the book of Ephesians, is the church, and more precisely, unity in the church. That's Paul's main thesis, his main point, is that we understand not only what the church is, but who we are as members of the church, the body of Christ, not the institutional church, but the living church, composed of living stones, the living temple in which God dwells by his spirit. And we're going to continue this morning with that same theme, the unity in the church, but we're going to look at it from a little different perspective. Up to this point, the first three chapters have been predominantly doctrinal. Paul has been setting forth the doctrine. He's been giving us the teaching about the church and when God called it into existence and how God actually brought it into existence. And then once the church is in existence, how he builds it up and the, the kinds of people that he makes uh, into the church. And he brings us to a point, we saw this the past couple of weeks, where, where we began to understand who we are particularly as members of the body of Christ. And so he's laid this doctrinal foundation. He's laid this, this understanding for us that is so important, so essential, before we can go on to uh, the next three chapters, which are largely practical application. And that's what we're going to begin this morning. We're going to begin to look at the practical outworking now in our lives as being members of the church. In other words, how should we live? What, what does God want? What does he uh, uh, desire from us? What is he insistent upon? And Paul is going to instruct us from here on in uh, throughout the sixth chapter. We've got some wonderful things ahead of us to study. Uh, we're going to talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit not too long from now. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the gifting of the church, the gifts that God has given the church. In, uh, we're going to talk about equipping the church for the ministry. Uh, we're going to talk about relationships in families and uh, employer-employee relationships, uh, relationships with one another, husband-wife. We've got a whole lot of exciting stuff ahead of us, and we're going to culminate with uh, talking about and understanding uh, spiritual warfare and uh, uh, intercession, prayerful intercession. So we've got lots of great things ahead of us that God has caused Paul to write in this letter. But we want to start this morning in, in the first part of the, of the section in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, I'm not going to get through all the material. I got halfway through Friday night and last night, so we'll probably just get halfway through this morning, and Lord willing, we'll complete it next week. But I want you to read with me the first six verses of chapter 4 in this powerful letter. Think of the, the, the letter to the Ephesian church as the holy of holies of the Bible. This is, this is so rich in theology and application, and it has to do with the, the very dwelling place of God. That's why you can look at it as the holy of holies of the Bible. Paul writes, and he repeats himself from, from verse 1 of chapter 3, where he describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He repeats this again in the first verse of chapter 4. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord. That's how he looks at himself. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. And just as you were called to one hope when you were called, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see in those last several verses, Paul keeps pointing to the oneness, the unity. And he uses that as the basis, as the undergirding for what he's calling us to grasp. That the church is one. There's only one God. There's one baptism, one faith. And we'll look more into this next time. But I want to look at this first couple verses this morning and talk about them with you. You know, when, when a person joins a, a club, an organization, a, a, a service organization, when you go to work for a, a, an employer, when you join an athletic team and you participate as a member of the team, that organization, that group, that, that, that team, they have goals. There are, there are agreed upon goals and aims and purposes, objectives, that, that you, by the very nature of joining, are obligating yourself to, to conform with. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, let's, let's use the example of an athletic team. You join an athletic team. And uh, the athletic team has a, has a certain goal. They have objectives ahead of them. There are rules to the game. There's a coaching staff. And, and by you joining the team, you're saying, uh, in effect, I, I'm buying into these goals. I'm buying into the purposes. I'm, I'm giving myself to the objectives of this team. I'm going to play by the rules. I'm going to uh, follow the coach's instructions. I'm going to listen, and I'm going to do what the coaches say, because they know better than I know. Sometimes we think we know better than the coaches know, but the coaches really know better. And so, and this is true of every organization, that there's a need for conformity. And without this conformity to these goals, to the direction, to the objectives and so forth of the organization that we belong and we participate with, without this conformity, human society could not function. I mean, we couldn't function without a, without a sense of orientation and uh, uh, agreement in moving in the same direction. This is so, so, this is a basic premise of society. And we all understand this, and, but, but it's so fundamental that sometimes we lose sight of, of the essence of, of the principle. And so I just wanted to remind us of that. Now, along with this, as human beings, we have a great desire, more than a desire, we have a, a need for acceptance. We long to be accepted. We hunger for acceptance. We uh, will do everything that we can possibly do to be accepted. We do do those things, uh, and we'll do everything we can uh, to avoid being rejected. Are you with me? How many people here this morning love rejection? That's your favorite thing in life. You love to be rejected. No, of course not. And so, you see, we, along with this, this conformity issue, there's this human need to be accepted and not to be rejected. And in, 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 in a lot of ways, we will go, we'll go to great lengths to be accepted, to be in the group, to be part of, and not to be rejected. We'll go to great, great lengths. And sometimes we'll go to great lengths, such lengths that, that we'll lie. We'll lie about what's true about our life or our situation, just so that we're accepted. I mean, you know what it is to wear a mask, true? You know what it is to not be tr completely transparent and vulnerable. We want to be. We, we try to be honest and truthful. But there's, we're just limited 
And so we find ourselves not always representing ourselves uh, as we really are. And the basic premise, the basic reason, the, the driving force behind that is because we want to be accepted and we don't want to be rejected. Does that make sense to you? And see, so we have this tension of conforming, and yet in the, in the need to conform, uh, just for the sake of order, if nothing else, we find ourselves, because we want to be accepted, that we sometimes go to great lengths uh, to be accepted and uh, certainly not rejected. And I want you to look at a couple of passages with me quickly. Turn to John chapter 9. And I'll give you a couple of examples of, of uh, people who went to great lengths to be accepted, and the lengths that they went to was, in fact, to deny Christ and to deny the calling uh, they, they had given them in their life, to deny the reality of what he had done. In John chapter 9, the account is, we won't read the whole thing, is the, uh, the setting where Jesus heals the man born blind. And uh, the Pharisees are all upset because Jesus has done it on the Sabbath, and they are all really ticked off. And so they, they confront this, this guy, and he says, well, he says, you know, I, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And then they, they call the parents in, and they interrogate the parents. And we pick up the account in um, verse 18. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So they want verification this guy was really blind from birth. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. We know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or uh, who opened his eyes, we don't know. They did know. You see, right there, their desire to be accepted, their desire not to be ostracized or rejected from the synagogue, they kept their mouth shut about the truth. They wanted to conform, and they went to great lengths to conform so that they wouldn't be rejected or ostracized. Read on with me. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. You see that? They didn't want to be kicked out. They didn't want to be rejected. And so they did whatever they had to do to stay in the good graces of the Jewish leaders and stay in the synagogue. That is why... His parents said, he's of age, ask him. In other words, they laid it right back on the, the man who had been born blind. Turn over to chapter 12, just a couple pages over. Verse 42. We say the same thing in a little different setting. Verse 42 says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, these are the Jewish leaders, believed in him, believed in Jesus. But because, the because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. You see that? You see this, 
this, this conformity issue dovetailing with the need to be accepted, not to be rejected. Do you see the, the place it can put people if you allow it? And, and, and sometimes in the church, sometimes in the church, our loyalties to God's standards and to his call to righteousness, his call to holiness, his call to be a, a witness and a testimony in an upfront way, sometimes that, it doesn't carry the same force as did this, this deal of being in the synagogue. I mean, we sometimes will we'll just bail on our responsibilities. We cave in under the pressure to demonstrate our faith, to speak boldly of our faith, to proclaim the name of Jesus, because we want to be accepted by others. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be mocked, laughed at. We don't want to be thought of as some religious fanatic. I mean, I face that tension every time someone out in the world says to me, how are you? And you know what my typical response is. I'm thankful. And I almost every time, they say, well, what are you thankful for? And I come up, the enemy is right there blowing in my ear. The enemy is right there saying, don't say Jesus. You say Jesus, and they're going to look at you funny like you're a weirdo. And I've got to steel myself against that. And I've got to say I'm, I'm thankful for Jesus Christ. I, uh, it was several months ago, I was in the steam room at the club, and it was real, you could hardly see in there. It was so much steam. And I went in there, and it takes a few minutes to get your eyes adjusted. So I sat down, there was a guy right next to me, and I said, morning. He said, good morning. I said, how are you? He said, oh, I'm tired. He said, how are you? I said, thankful. He says, what are you thankful for? And the enemy was right there. He says, oh, man, don't say it now. This guy's going to just ream all over you. And I just said, well, I'm going to say it anyway. I said, well, you know, I'm thankful for Jesus. Boy, you could have heard a pin drop in that little room. <laughs> but see, the point is, is, is that we have this need to be accepted. And it's, and, and, and it's so hard for us to conform to what God wants us to conform to in this life unless we're absolutely committed. Absolutely committed. We want the praise of men more than God's praise. That's the bottom line issue. That's how God sees it. And every time we fail, God sees it that way. Now, he loves us. We go to him and we say, God, forgive me for my failure again. And he forgives us. His grace is overwhelming where our sin increases. But the point is, that's the bottom line issue. That's how God sees it. You love the praise of men more than you love my praise. And Paul, in this passage, as he's already laid the foundation to help us know and understand who we are, what it is to be a member of the church, he says, now, live your life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Don't worry about this need to be accepted or rejected. Conform to that which I've 
called you to conform to. Do it. Do it. Too many times Christians are they're glad to have the, the spiritual security and blessings and promises of the gospel. But while they're glad to have these things, sometimes we have too little sense of the responsibility of conforming to its standards and obeying its commands. We, we don't engage that responsibility nearly like we should. I see it in my own life, and I grieve over it. And I know that's true for many, many people. God expects conformity. Let me say that again. Write this down. God expects conformity. That, that doesn't mean that he wants, he's going to stamp us all out of the same little mold. We all march in one little straight line like a little, little soul. No, conformity in the sense that, that we're not conforming to some uh, external standards and rules. He doesn't, he's not pointing us to some, some legalistic kind of thing that says, all right, you better do this, da, 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 da. No, God expects conformity and inner conformity from the heart. From the heart. Because you've grasped who He is and what He's done, your response can only be a response of the heart. Lord, whatever you say, whatever you say, it could never, I could never do enough. Jesus, you hung on the cross and you paid the entire price. You, you, you gave every last drop of blood for me. Could I do any less? Jesus was obedient. He obeyed his Father. And he did it from his heart. Not because he had to, because he wanted to. Because there was a love relationship that was real and alive and vital. And God says to us as his children now, obey me. Obey me, I've given you a new heart. I sent my son to the cross for you. And so he wants us to conform an inner conformity, an inner, inner life that conforms to, to his holiness, his love, his will, His purpose. Am I making sense to you? It's not just an external conformity. It's not just going through the motions. It's not being obedient just for being obedient. It's for being obedient for love. For love. Love of our Heavenly Father. He wants us, His children, to honor Him as Father. And we honor him through obedience. Today's Father's Day. Happy, happy Father's Day, all you fathers. And today especially, we should be reminded of, of what it means to honor our fathers. But more so to honor our Heavenly Father. To honor our Heavenly Father today. And let this be a hallmark for the rest of our life. Why don't you look at a couple of passages. Turn over to, to Philippians. That's right after Ephesians. Philippians chapter 1. You know, the calling or the call to live a worthy life is costly. It's costly. It, takes, it doesn't take anything to come to Christ. I mean, coming to Christ is free. 
You become a Christian, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. But following Christ costs you everything. It costs you your life. Jesus said, if you're my disciple, then deny yourself. I mean, that's costly, denying yourself. Denying your ego and, and your wants and your, the things that you have preference for. Deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow after me daily. It's costly to live a life worthy of the calling to which God has called us. And I want to show you a couple passages that really undergird this. In chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27, this is what Paul writes here. These first two words, you ought to underline them. This is powerful. He says, whatever happens, whatever happens, Whatever situation befalls you, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, honor him. Whatever happens, he still comes first. Whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. That's costly, isn't it? That's costly. When things are crashing in around you, when nothing's making sense, when you're hurting and frustrated, when you're feeling rejected, misunderstood, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about conformity, isn't he? He's talking about conforming to God's will, God's purposes. Oh, but you know how hard that is. I do know how hard it is. I face it every day. And I'm learning every day in my own life, in my family life, in my life here as the shepherd of this church. I'm learning that whatever happens to live my life and to conform myself according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be a worthy servant. And it's costly, beloved. It's costly. But that's what God's calling us to. And he's equipped us. You see, God wants to bless us. He wants to overwhelm us with his love and his grace and his blessing. But only as we conform to his purposes can we then be in a position where we can receive the blessings. And we only see a small part of the picture. We only see a little teeny piece. We don't see the whole scope of things that God sees. And that's why the writer of the Proverbs says, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't trust in your own human fallible wisdom, but trust in him. Do what he says, no matter what the circumstance is. Obey him. Because that's the road to life. That's the road to blessing. Live a life worthy of the calling. Live a life worthy of the calling. Look over at 1 Thessalonians. A couple of books over. There's Philippians, Colossians, then 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 1. Again, the same kind of sentiment is repeated here. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as, in fact, you are living. Isn't that exciting? Paul gets to write to them and he gets to say, wonderful, you guys are living the way we've instructed you. And then he goes, now we ask you and urge you 
in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. In other words, don't just sit back on your laurels. Press on in. Live your life more and more for his glory. Don't just take it easy. Don't do what's comfortable. Continue to press into a deeper, richer walk with him. Isn't that glorious? He says, do this more and more. You know the instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. We've been instructed. God has given by authority the leadership in the church to instruct the church how they should live their life based on the truth that God has shared with us. You remember Romans, my favorite book? How could you forget, right? Romans chapter 12. Same thing. There's a break between the doctrine and the application uh, between 11 and 12. And in chapter 12, the very first verse, Paul says, therefore, he, he points them back. He says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies as what? Remember the phrase? Living sacrifices. Does that sound like conforming to God's standards? Does that sound like something costly? Absolutely. Beloved, if it is not costing you anything in your life to follow Jesus, you're not following Jesus. If it is not costing you anything in your life every day to follow Jesus, you are not following Jesus. I can't say it any more plainly. That's what the scriptures say. You come into the kingdom, you get saved, you profess Jesus as Savior, but you also must profess him as Lord. You've got to profess him as Lord. And the moment you profess him as Lord, then that, that, that just requires you to submit to his lordship and press on into the kingdom. And pressing into the kingdom is costly for us in this life. But we're not here to store up treasure in this life, are we? Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. And boy, storing up treasure in heaven is costly. It's costly. And so Paul gives us an understanding of these, these great and wonderful truths and the cost of, indeed, living a life worthy of the calling, a worthy life of Jesus. Now he calls himself a prisoner. I like this. He repeats himself from verse 1 of chapter 3, and he, he comes back to that same word. He says, uh, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord. Now, he's, he's playing off a word here, and I think he's meaning uh, a couple of things. One, he really is a prisoner. He's in chains. He's in jail. He's in Rome. He's been carried off, and he's writing his last letters to some of the churches from his uh, um, incarceration in Rome. So very really, he is a physical prisoner. But more than that, he's a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. Let me describe to you what I mean. When he describes his, his imprisonment to the Lord Jesus, he's talking about an attitude of complete subservience to Jesus Christ. Complete subservience. He's learned long ago to give his life to Christ unreservedly. Trusts him wholly. So much so that he says, I am a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When did Paul's imprisonment begin? You remember? Acts chapter 9, the road to Damascus, where he says about himself, and I think it's in Philippians, he says, I was apprehended by the Lord. I was apprehended. And so he entered that imprisonment on the road to Damascus, and for the whole rest of his life, he never sought to be released, to be freed from his imprisonment. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that dedication? Don't you love it? Doesn't you just look at Paul and it inspires you? But you know what? His experience ought to be normative in the church. It ought not just to be Paul. He urges every believer to be like him, to follow his example, to be a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the gospel. That's his, that's his call to us. That's his teaching over and over and over. And he says it's costly to do so. He's a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. His motives were Christ's motives. His standards were Christ's standards. His objectives were Christ's objectives. His vision was Christ's vision. His entire orientation was Christ's orientation. He lived his life for the sake of his Lord. He was a prisoner in every sense of the word, completely subservient to Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us regularly stop and ask ourselves when we make a decision, when, we, when we, uh, uh, something comes out of our mouth, when we think about doing something, uh, when something comes into our life, a gift, a blessing, something, how many of us stop and, and say, you know, I wonder, I wonder how this will affect him. I wonder how this will reflect on him. I wonder what he would want me to do in this situation. I wonder how I could use this to be a blessing to him. See, most of us don't think that way. Most of us just kind of go about our day fairly mindless of, of how our day and our activities and our actions, our words, our thoughts really are affecting and reflecting on him. I mean, the Lord can be grieved, and he is grieved, I know. It, it things in my life, and I, as the day ends, I reflect on my life, and I think, oh, Lord, forgive me. I sure stuck my foot in my mouth on that one. I sure blew it with that person. I wasn't faithful with that thing you gave me. You gave me an opportunity there, and I completely blew it. Forgive me. But you see, if we, if we would just begin to think more of who we are, more of what we are as members of the church, and, and we begin to have a mindset, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I was apprehended on such and such a date. And I don't want to be free from this imprisonment. In fact, I want to press on in deeper to it. I'm going to be completely subservient to him. I want his goals, his objective, his vision to be my goals, my objectives, my vision. I want my whole orientation to reflect his orientation. More and more. And you know, you've got to be daily diligently, intentionally after that. The minute you let up, the minute you, that's it, you lose it. You lose it. He's a prisoner. He says, and I urge you. I love that phrase. He says, I urge you. That's not just some kind of simple request on Paul's part. Paul was a very passionate man. He believed passionately in the gospel. He believed passionately in what he had to give to people. He says in Romans chapter 1, he tells the Roman church in his letter to him, he says, oh, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. I can hardly wait to get there. I've been prevented many times from coming to you until now. 
And why is he so eager to preach the gospel? He says, because I know, I know the gospel is the greatest thing. It's the greatest news. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You see, Paul's a passionate man. And so calling to which they've been called. He's passionate about it. Over in Acts chapter 26, when Paul is before King Agrippa, Luke records that, that Paul is, is, he begs King Agrippa to listen to him. He begs this pagan king, listen to me, King Agrippa. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the Galatian church. He writes there, he says, I plead with you. I plead with you to imitate me, to be like me, follow my example. Over in Romans chapter 9, the first three verses, you, you get a real sense of, of his love and his passion, especially for the people who God has given him spiritual care over, with, with particular respect to the Jews. Listen to what he says, the first three verses of chapter 9 of Romans. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. He would, he's saying, he said, God, I'd be willing to lose my own salvation that you would save the Jews. Save my brothers according to the flesh. That's passion, isn't it? Is Paul a serious man? Does that sound like a man who's absolutely committed? Does that sound like a man who's got the whole world against him, but he's not going to bend one inch? He's not given into one opportunity to uh, flag on his commitment? Yes. And beloved, the call is to us. The same call. The same call. To live our lives worthy of the calling. Paul lived his life worthy of the calling. He could not rest until those given into his spiritual care lived their lives worthy of the calling to which they've been called. What's the calling? What's the calling? We've been called to be citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. More than that, children of God. Beloved church, we're no longer citizens of this world. We're no longer children of the devil. We are the very dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. And unless you understand it, unless you grab a hold of it, unless you take ownership of it, you'll never live a life worthy of the calling like Paul urges us. None of us will. That's got to be the forefront of our thinking continuously. Who am I? What am I? What's my calling? What has God called me to? And how you view yourself will determine how you live your life. Do you live your life worthy of that? Or do you live your life according to the world? Do you see yourself still as a child of the devil? Do you deny Christ? Do you deny the testimony that's in you? Because you're afraid to be rejected, because you're afraid to be ostracized. I mean, all of us deal with this tension. All of us deal with this dilemma. But God has promised to strengthen us. 
He's promised to strengthen us, come into our life and fill us if we would but trust him. We're talking about commitment, aren't we? We're talking about commitment and conformity to what God wants. God says, you shall be holy because I am holy. Paul over and over says, oh, I love it when he says in Philippians chapter 3, I strain forward. Why did he choose that word? Strain. He didn't say, well, I'm just kind of ambling toward the kingdom. No, he's running full blast. Straining toward the kingdom. Let's talk a little bit about this life worthy of a calling. What, what are the qualities? What are the qualities that really ought to characterize a life that's worthy of the calling? There are several qualities, and we're just going to cover the first one because it's probably the most significant, and, and it's out of this first quality that all the other qualities flow. Without this first one, you don't have the others. This first one is so critical. We're going to spend the most time on it. What's the first quality? Humility, isn't it? That's the hardest one. That's the hardest one. Humility. When we think about humility, the word in the Greek literally means to view or to judge with lowliness. You look at yourself and you look and you, you begin to see and you say, you know, I, I really, I really am nothing. I am really no big deal. Now the world has taught us, our families have taught us, our parents have taught us to, to build ourselves up. There's this great move for self-esteem. There's this great press, you know, esteem yourself well. You know that? Can anybody relate to that? You've been in any kind of counseling, you know, the counselor always tells you, you know, you've got to think better of yourself. You've got to think better of yourself. You've got to lift yourself up. You've got to say, you know, I'm worth something. I'm a somebody. You know, I have a place in this world. That denies completely and categorically what this passage has to say. Humility means that you count yourself nothing. You count yourself nothing. You've got nothing to add, nothing to contribute. You are absolutely worthless. Isn't that exciting? Well, you know what? That, that relieves me of a whole lot of stuff. That sets me free. I can be nothing and it's okay. I don't have to pour all my energy into being somebody that I could never be anyway. The first quality, the first characteristic, the first element, the first essential that ought to be seen in a life that is a life worthy of the calling of God is humility. To think or to judge with lowliness. You remember in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. What was the very first Beatitude? Remember what it was? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what poor in spirit means? It's another way of saying humble. Blessed are the ones who have a poor Spirit. They're not, they don't have a haughty spirit. They don't have a proud spirit. Blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit. You see, God's perspective of things is completely opposite from this world's perspective of things. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For they will inherit what? 
kingdom of heaven. They'll inherit it. Are the proud going to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Uh-uh. The proud already got what they got. That's all they're going to get. But it's the ones who have nothing to offer. It's the ones who acknowledge that and say, oh, Lord, I... those are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. The only place in Scripture where he identifies himself, where he tells us anything about himself, he describes himself. This is the only place. He says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Humble of heart. Again, Jesus exalts humility. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul reminds us that Jesus humbled himself, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. The God of the universe humbled himself and became a man and subjected himself to our humiliations, even to the point of death on a cross. Man, do we endure with much patience indignities and insults? No, we don't. You know why? Because we don't possess the quality of humility, true humility. In 1 John chapter 2, turn there, page 1247. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Actually, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Now get this next verse, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. He doesn't say, whoever claims to be a Christian, you know, maybe, part-time, once in a while, walk like Jesus did. What's it say? Must. That word must isn't in there by mistake. He's talking about a commitment. He's talking about God expects conformity. Must walk as Jesus did. It is costly, beloved, to follow Jesus. You hear me? I love you so much. I love you so much. I risk some of you getting real mad at me. And some of you get mad at me. I know that. Because I'm hard, tough on you. But if I'm not going to be tough on you, who is? I don't want to stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day and have Him say, You watered down my word. I want you to understand that God's calling us to a commitment. Absolute, utter obedience from our hearts. This is no game. It's no fairy tale. We just don't gather here and sing songs and slap each other on the back, give each other hugs and, and say, well, see you next week. We're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about people's eternal destiny. And I can't stress it strongly enough because I love you. In the culture in which Paul spoke and taught, 
The Greeks and the Romans, you know they had no word for humility? They had no word for it. They didn't believe in it. The concept of humility was totally foreign to them. Just like it is in our own culture. Totally foreign. It was, it was unnatural for the Greek or the Roman. Totally unnatural for them. Uh, not to think of themselves with, with a, a, a pride and, and self-satisfaction. And that's the very thing that our culture drives us to. Be proud of yourself. Do a good job and be proud. Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, you do a good job, you've only done what's been required of you. And you're still an unfaithful servant. Self-satisfaction. That's what the world says. That's what was going on in the Greek and Roman culture. That's what's characteristic of a pagan culture. That ought not to be characteristic of the church. Each one of us have got to be men and women who are committed to Christ and to living a life worthy of the calling. Boy, this stuff is all going to burn. It's all going to burn. We spend all of our time and all of our energy pursuing stuff that's just going to burn up. And we're doing it so we can be adulated and feel significant and important, and I'm doing a great job, and look how cool I am. And all the while, God's going, no way. Wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Humility is terribly elusive. Do you know that? I mean, the minute you think you got it, you just lost it. <laughs> the minute you got it, you think you just lost it. If you focus on humility too long, it turns into pride. It turns into pride. Right away, just like that. I had a guy come up to me one time. I preached a message on humility several years ago. He went to me after the service, and he said, Pastor. I said, yes. He said, Pastor, I want you to know I loved your message. I said, wonderful. He said, I want you to know I'm a humble man. <laughs> I said, God bless you, brother. <laughs> Didn't hear a word I said. <laughs> you can relate, huh, John? Oh, man. Nothing is more foreign to the way of the world than humility. The world exalts pride, not humility. And this is the premier mark of a person who's living their life worthy of the calling. God's work cannot be accomplished by the world's ways. Do you know that? God's work cannot be accomplished by the world's ways. And the church is filled with the world's ways today. Filled with it. I'm in a constant battle against the world's ways. In my own life, as I pastor this church, as we, as we think about programs, how are we going to minister, how are we going to do this, how are we going to do that, what does God want us to do? And boy, the world's ways just, just filter in. And it's a constant struggle to battle against them, to hold them out. God's work cannot be done, cannot be accomplished by the world's ways. His call is to humility, and His work is accomplished only through humility. Do you remember when Jesus got up and washed the disciples' feet? 
He humbled himself, didn't he? And he accomplished a great work in doing that. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. I mean, it's got to be dripping all over you. Clothe yourselves in humility. He says, he says further, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, and he will exalt you. You know what the very first sin was? You know what the very first sin was? The sin of what? Pride. The sin of pride. The very first sin was the sin of pride, and every sin committed ever since was in one way or another an extension of pride. I want you to see the very first sin. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. Isaiah records the fall of Satan. Satan was originally the highest, most powerful, most intelligent, most beautiful of all God's created beings. He was El Numero Uno. He was the big one. And he stood right at the throne of God. You can imagine, maybe you can't, I can't even imagine how beautiful and powerful and mighty Satan was, invested with power. But listen to what Isaiah says. How you have fallen from heaven, verse 12, O morning star, son of the dawn. If you have a King James, that's translated Lucifer. That's where we get the word Lucifer. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Look at verse 13. You said in your heart, you said in your heart, I will ascend I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's the five I wills of Satan. That's pride. That's pride. I will. You know, that's why the scriptures say, if you're going to do something, say, well, Lord willing, I'll do that. See you tomorrow, Lord willing. See you tonight, Lord willing. That's what the scriptures say. And the first sin is pride right there. Now look at the results of pride. Next verse, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. See what happens? When you exalt yourself, you're brought down low, devastated. Pride is a sin from which all other sins emanate. The next sin was in the garden. Adam and Eve, chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 6 and 7. You see them make a choice, and it's a prideful choice. They give themselves over to their own understanding. They don't listen and obey the Word of God. They know better. They're going to do what they think is right. And as a result, they fall from a state of perfection to a state of imperfection and take the whole human race with them. The entire universe is infected with sin because of that one prideful choice. Think of it. You see the devastating effects of pride? Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. Let me read some Proverbs to you. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. 
Boy, when I bow my knee and I humble myself, then God brings me wisdom. But as long as I'm standing there defiantly, pridefully saying, no, I'm going to do it my way, then comes disgrace. And all of those around you are disgraced because of your own pride. Chapter 13, verse 10 of, of Proverbs. Pride only breeds quarrels. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Now, who takes advice? A person who's humble. A person who's not a know-it-all. A person who listens. Look at chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit or, or a proud spirit before a fall. Man, when you start saying, I, me, and start looking for yourself and seeking out for yourself, you're setting yourself up for a fall every time. Look at chapter 21, verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. You know what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, that the eyes are the, are the, the, the lamp, the light of the soul? If you've got a proud heart, haughty eyes, that's a lamp of sin. People can see it right in you. And you know when someone's being prideful around you, don't you? And you see, you can just see sin. Beloved, I can't impress upon you strongly enough. Humility needs to be the hallmark of our life. Pride is the first sin, and it's behind every other sin. It's behind every other devastation. Pride. Pride. Nothing else. Pride. Pride comes in many forms, doesn't it? Pride is indeed, first of all, the, the supreme temptation from Satan. It's the primo temptation from him, the temptation to be prideful, the temptation to look on yourself. Why is that the supreme temptation? Because it's pride that is, the, is at the very core of his evil nature. And so he's going to promulgate that. He's going to promote that. He's going to put that out there. He's going to tempt us at the point of pride. But pride comes in many, many forms. I mean, we're proud of our abilities. Uh, we're proud of our, our possessions, our education, our social status. Uh, we're proud of any, any power we might possess. We're proud of our appearance, many of us. Some of us are proud of our biblical knowledge. And some of us are even proud of our spiritual accomplishments. Too much so to the point where we rest on past victories. Too many people saying, well, I remember when the Lord did this. When God used me in this... I don't care what happened 15 years ago. What's God doing today? How are you humbling yourself today? Where is he using you today? He isn't going to use you. If you haven't been used by God, if nothing's going on in your life, it's because you're proud. Prideful. And you're not living a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Because pride's tripping you. You haven't been used. You can't point to something today and pride's in your way. Pride's in your way. Beloved, I can't impress this enough. 
The Lord calls his people to humility. He calls his people to humility. And the only way to gain humility is this. Listen carefully. You can't sit there and say, I'm going to be humble today. I'm going I'm to be humble. I'm going to be a humble person. You can't do that. You know how you gain humility? The only way you can gain humility is this. You have to have a proper sense of your own person, a, a, a self-awareness and a God-awareness. You have to see that you're absolutely nothing. You have to see that you're, you're headed to hell. You have to see that you've got nothing to offer God. You're dead. But I'm a Christian by God's grace. But still, in and of yourself, you have nothing to offer Him except brokenness and pain, foolishness, rebellion, sin. See, you have to see. You have to look around the world. You see nothing but devastation in the world. You see man has a real problem, a real dilemma on his hands. Science is not the answer. We've tried that. The whole New Age movement is sweeping around the world. Why? Because people are looking for something that will get them out of their troubles. And they're turning to the supernatural, but they're turning in the wrong direction. And until man begins to rightly assess himself, he has nothing to offer God. He is absolutely worthless. And then when he changes his focus and he looks to God, when he sees God is awesome, perfect, righteous, holy, good, just, awesome, then and only then he begins to gain some sense of the great gap and the gulf between God and him. And then with that sense, that awareness, then he says, oh God, forgive me. Forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for my arrogance. Forgive me for my foolishness. Forgive me for not seeing myself as I really am. And forgive me for not seeing you as who you really are. You see, it's only then with that perspective, with an appropriate self-awareness and appropriate God-awareness, then does humility begin to take root in your life. Then and only then does humility become to take root in your life. You get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you say, I'm a, I'm a beautiful child of God. God loves me. He saved me. He cherishes me. You know, I'm precious to Him. But I have nothing to offer Him except my life. And then after you've said that, because you're aware of this gulf, uh, because you're aware of your absolute dependence and need on Him, Paul writes in the first chapter of Romans, he said, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks. And their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Giving thanks is an expression of an understanding that we're dependent upon Him. You go about your day, and every moment of every day, you're mindful of this gulf, you're mindful of your need and your dependence on Him, and every moment of every day, you're saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for Jesus on the cross. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that keeps me close to you. Thank you for the... the the thoughts that you give me. Thank you for the Bible. God, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my husband. Thank you for my, ch my children. God, thank you for my parents. God, thank you for the very breath that you give me to breathe. You see, that's the mark of a truly humble person. A person who's moving about saying, God, thank you. From his heart, thank you. Thank you. 
Look with me at Luke chapter 18. One last passage and we're going to close. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. to some who were still confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you. Now, we just talked about thanking God, but I want you to see what he thanks God for. I thank you that I'm not like other men robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. In fact, God, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. God, you ought to be happy to have me. I'm an asset to you. That's what he's saying, isn't he? But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. What's that reflective of? A heart that understood that he was not worthy. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He had an accurate self-awareness and he had an accurate God-awareness. That was the only thing that allowed him to stand there in the temple at a distance and beat his breath and say, God, forgive me, have mercy on me, a sinner. He saw the distance. He saw the gap. And Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Beloved, let's pray. Father, we have thought on some awesome things this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words, these thoughts, and magnify them in our minds and our hearts, cause them to penetrate deeply into our being, down to the deepest point of our spirit. And Father, that out of us would come rivers of living water, that we'd be enthusiastic for you like never before, that we would leave this place this morning changed people, committed to living a life worthy of the calling to which you've called us, men and women marked by this quality of humility. Lord, we acknowledge that it's nothing we can generate on our own, but it only comes from a proper awareness of who we are and who you are. Father, we, like the tax collector, beat our breast. We say, have mercy on us. We thank you for your graciousness to us. We thank you for your love. We bless your name and we praise you, Father. Make these things real to us, O God. Each and every one, I pray. In Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.